Welcome to the UN and Organized Crime podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Summer Walker. As multilateralism itself comes under intense pressure and as transnational organized crime continues to succeed, expand, and diversify, we'll analyze the responses to the issue with some of the world's leading experts as we try to unpack diplomatic discussions, policy developments, and program implementation. Today, I'm joined by two authors of a new report titled The Downsides of Digital Revolution, Confronting Africa's Evolving Cyber Threats. Thompson Samanlar, who's the research director for GFONA Digital Foundation in Cameroon, and Nate Allen, an associate professor at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, D.C. And today we're together to speak about the report in the context of the ongoing negotiations at the UN to elaborate a treaty on crimes committed using ICT or casually called cybercrime. So after spending 2022 gathering initial positions from member states and interested stakeholders, the ad hoc committee has now produced their first consolidated negotiating draft in November of 2022. And this year, states will begin to negotiate the actual treaty language. One key issue in this process has been technical capacity to counter cybercrime. And I'm very happy to be here today with Thompson and Nate to discuss their new report. So I first wanted to look at the report overall with the both of you. And in your report, you touch upon a broad range of security threats across Africa. And given the focus of the UN negotiations on cybercrime, Could you tell us a bit about the current situation regarding cybercrime, including some of the criminal networks you highlight? Thompson, let's start with you. Yes, thanks. This is one of the most rapidly growing threats to African enterprises. As we wrote in our report in the past, this threat was primarily from outside actors, but we now see a pivot towards African countries being hubs for criminals, for cybercriminals. What is interesting is that Even traditional African organized criminal groups are also choosing to expand and diversify their activities through cyber-dependent crimes like business email compromise scam. The the report talks about the downsides of digital revolution in Africa, and that is because on one hand, we are genuinely concerned that rapidly digitalization yet relative lack of cyber awareness and cybersecurity precautions among businesses, enterprises, and governments in Africa is rendering the continent's more digitized states an appealing target. And on the other hand, we are also concerned that a growing young computer literate population, spread of new technologies, joblessness, and mounting economic inequalities is creating a perfect breeding ground for cyber criminals in Africa. The last thing I want to add is that in terms of current situation, there are many cyber criminal groups and individuals with very advanced and sophisticated self-developed tools and tactics. Groups like Fog Bomber of Kenya and Silver Terrier of Nigeria even produce and distribute their own malware and exploit tools. And Nate, do you want to jump in here? Sure, absolutely. So I I think that Tomslin hit the nail on the head when he highlighted that cybercrime in Africa is a significant 
and growing threat. There was an estimate out, I think, this year issued by Interpol that estimated the annual cost of cybercrime in Africa at $4 billion a year. This is probably underestimated because most malicious cyber activity, most cyber crimes in Africa do not go reported. And I think one major development we're seeing with developments like business email compromise scammers, as Thompson mentioned, or Fort Bombo, is the growth of cyber criminal actors internal to Africa. You know, where in much of the previous decade, a lot of the cyber attacks you got were external actors coming in. More and more and more, you're seeing homegrown actors develop their own malware, their own capabilities. Recently in the news, there was a group called Operator, which was developing malware specifically to target West African banks. And another major development is we're seeing increasingly more traditional organized criminal networks that have been involved in non-cyber-related crimes like London Blue, like Black Axe, also get into cybercrime simply because it's, it's a quite lucrative business. The one final thing I'll add is that in addition to cybercrime, we are also beginning to see digitization transform the networks and actors and markets for more traditional forms of, of organized crime. You know, so for example, in South Africa, they have a big problem with illicit pharmaceuticals, most of which are acquired through online marketplaces. You've also seen illicit trafficking networks, for example, in East Africa, develop via connections through social media such as Facebook. Thanks so much. I was going to ask you, what are some of the main challenges you've identified? But it's pretty clear that you've already thoroughly thought this through. Did you find different challenges depending on the specific region in Africa you were looking at? I, I guess I can I can start there. Sure. I, I think in terms of the, the time, certainly the most significant and sophisticated are actors that perpetrate various kinds of fraud. Um, Tomslin mentioned the growth of business email compromise scammers, which sounds innocuous, but are actually kind of loosely horizontally integrated networks of cyber criminals, most of whom are based in, in Africa and Nigeria specifically, but also have networks throughout the world. And they target businesses, governments, financial institutions, and have stolen, according to the, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, $44 billion over the past five years, including from, for example, the, the state unemployment insurance systems in, in Washington state during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So while they're based in Africa, they have global reach. And, and I will say that the type of crime definitely does depend on the region, um, right? For example, I think that if you are a maritime country in Africa, you have to take maritime security seriously because we're seeing port networks, for example, become vulnerable to cyber attacks. There was an attack in 2021 against Transnet, the state-owned port operator in South Africa, which ground shipping to a halt for the entire Southern African region for a period of, of 10 days. So again, I think the, the types of vulnerability you have tends to depend on where you are, what kind of infrastructure you have, and, and frankly, how cyber mature you are. You know, we, we often forget that there are still two-thirds of people in Africa who do not have access to internet. For them, I think being the victim of a cyber crime or a cyber attack is still a pretty abstract 
possibility. Although that's that's going to change pretty pretty rapidly over the next few decades. Thanks, Thompson. Do you want to jump in? Yes, we did identify a couple. The top four for me were deficit in cybersecurity knowledge and skill. Most cyber crimes. The fact that most cyber crimes are not detected by African institutions themselves when we when we started this points to the fact that there are really huge skill gaps which presents an opportunity. And we noticed that the eastern, southern and bits of western like Nigeria and Ghana, including Senegal as well, were better. We found that they were better at uh, addressing cyber crime and the skills required for that than Central African countries. The other challenge we found was the reluctance by both citizens and businesses in reporting cybercrime to authorities. I think this was not really region dependent in Africa, but we, we, we found that we couldn't tell whether it's the culture or, or what, but we did find that businesses were reluctant to report cybercrime and citizens too were very reluctant to report cybercrime. And the third challenge we found were significant obstacles to regional and, and international cooperation uh, within Africa itself. We noted we noted in our report the absence of threat information sharing between states on the continent. And I think within the regions where there are economic blocks, there are better arrangements in terms of information sharing. For example, the Fog Bombo group, when it was its mem- some most of its members were arrested in Rwanda. Even though the group is primarily from Kenya, they had crossed borders attacking Uganda first, then moving to Rwanda after pressure from the Kenyan authorities to arrest them. Now, they were only arrested in Rwanda because of information that had been shared between security partners between the countries. Therefore, we find that it's easier when there are those economic blocks where they already have other existing arrangements, security arrangements, for example. So that's something we also found that was a challenge. That's really interesting, especially that where infrastructure exists for cooperation, you see a faster adaptation. That makes a lot of sense. I do want to turn to the idea of technical assistance because that is something that will be a part of the treaty negotiations and possibly a chapter in the treaty. What can we learn about technical needs for responding to cybercrime from your risk assessment, including on issues like critical infrastructure? I think the biggest thing we can learn is that there is a lack of basic understanding of the intersection between digital and national security by leaders in Africa. And, and this lack of understanding influences the technical needs for the states to respond to cybercrime. Organized criminal groups across Africa depend on information technology to conduct their operations. Therefore, African law enforcement also needs digital tools, and this is missing. We found there wasn't a lot of investment in this area, and that 
is a significant thing we could learn about the technical needs for states in Africa and how they could protect critical infrastructure. I think some countries do not even have a definition of digital critical infrastructure to start with. So they couldn't even understand what their technical needs are when they lack such a definition for critical infrastructure. Then mechanisms for reporting cybercrime. In the absence of reporting, you're going blind, literally. So we found that mechanisms for reporting cybercrime incidents is where there's also a huge capacity gap. And this is wide ranging from requirements for organizations to report breaches to things like easy ways for citizens to also report the cybercrime to authorities, law enforcement and websites where citizens can report cybercrime, that is, or the search websites are not very intuitive as easy as walking into a police station. I think they need to make it that easy as well. And, and we found that citizens were also speaking to some people in Uganda. Where I found that citizens were reluctant to even walk to the police station to report cybercrime because there is the perception that the police officers sitting in the in the police station do not have the skills, nor are they equipped to even record the cybercrime, nor investigate it. So we thought there was a huge technical gap there as well. Thanks, Tomslin. Over to you, Nate. Sure, thanks. So I think as Tomslin highlighted, we need to take a risk-based approach to cybersecurity, which means that you're never going to be able to stop every attack. What's important is that you can Stop as many as you can, and then when you do get attacked, have some kind of plans, policies, or infrastructure in place to recover. So what does that mean at a technical level for most African countries? Well, it starts with what are known as national computer emergency response teams, which are teams of technical level professionals that help countries recover from cyber attacks. And in some cases, they also do things like threat intelligence or advisory alerts or things like that. Unfortunately, most African countries have yet to establish a national computer emergency response team, much less have computer emergency response teams at the sectoral level, which is an emerging good practice. In some cases, this is because they are fairly expensive to set up in a lot of countries resource constraints, so there is definitely need for capacity building there. I also highlight the need for both the police and the judiciary to collect and use electronic evidence in a court of law as a key area of focus for technical capacity building. You can't effectively prosecute what you can't understand and I think that, you know, while there is, I think, a, a growing understanding among police forces across the continent of the need to have some kind of cyber unit in place to collect threat intelligence, to conduct investigations, I think the judicial sector in particular is a bit behind the game. And that's, that's actually crucially important because if you want to build cyber capacity while respecting the rule of law, you need the, the justice sector to have capacity to you know, take the evidence that's given to them by the police and use it to effectively bring 
people to justice. I think this is actually true not just with respect to cybersecurity, but with respect to security and justice issues in Africa writ large. The judicial sector is is crucially important, but also chronically undercapacitated. Yeah, I think awareness building is maybe often overlooked when we talk about something that relates to a security field, but you're right in that it's very important for people to even know what to report, where to report, and what might happen afterwards, a feeling that something can be done about it. So I want to turn to the idea of responses. In the report, one of your key recommendations is that governments implement multi-stakeholder policies and strategies. So at the moment, one of these potential documents is being drafted. What advice would you give to the negotiators? So a couple pieces of advice. First, I think it's important both in the negotiations, but also when it comes to states actually implementing them. In order to do cybersecurity effectively, you need inclusivity. This means that cybersecurity strategy and policy documents shouldn't be secretive. They shouldn't be drafted by a few technical professionals or ministers. They need to consult widely with a wide range of stakeholders. This is because the private sector controls the vast majority of the internet's infrastructure. They are most often responsible for frontline cyber defense. And that's also because I think in order for governments to be held accountable to citizens, you need to tailor your cybersecurity strategies and policies to meet their needs. Ultimately, you know, this is not just about preventing attacks against governments. It's about, you know, I think human well-being and and welfare. One thing I do think needs to be baked in and maybe more of a, a technical level recommendation would be for active capacity building for states to do cyber strategy and policy and not not for them to what often happens is that you get external consultants writing cybersecurity strategies and policies i know a number of african governments where that's been the case that's not what you need you do need i think technical capacity building to make sure that conclusive processes like i just described are followed um, you do need resources that are allocated to ensure strategies implementation. I I did another piece of research with with a colleague that kind of showed that one of the key obstacles to actively implementing the strategy in a lot of African countries is there's no actual budget for implementation. So that that needs to be addressed. And a final and kind of crucially important thing I I would emphasize is that I think cybersecurity capacity building and multi-stakeholder approaches are, are, are kind of a, a two-way street. There needs to be south-to-south a capacity building and cooperation. You know, even though the African region is the world's least cyber-mature region, there are now seven African countries in the top 51 most committed countries to cybersecurity, according to the UN Information Technology Union. There are, I think, lots of lessons that more, kind of to use the terminology I used earlier, cyber mature countries like Mauritius, like Ghana, like Senegal, like Morocco, like Egypt, can share to countries who were, who were just digitizing. And I think those countries need to be encouraged to be involved in helping countries that are a little bit less cyber mature craft cyber policy and strategy. And, and to do that, I think it's essential that regional institutions be a little bit more involved than they have to date. Um, One of the recommendations we make in the report, for example, is for regional institutions to take charge of setting up 
regional networks of computer emergency response teams to share good practices. And, and one, one, I think, key area that, that needs to change is that mo- in, in most regional organizations, uh, the places that are doing cybersecurity policy and strategy tend to be located in the ICT and technical directorates. I think they need more cooperative mechanisms to work with some of the more peace and security focused directorates. So, for example, there is no equivalent to the UN Institute for Disarmament Research, either the African Union or, or ECOWAS. And I think there needs to be more connective tissue between the folks who are experts in peace and security and the folks who are experts on cybersecurity at African regional organizations. I think that's a potentially large role the international community can play, the UN can play in in building cyber capacity in kind of this broad multi-stakeholder approach that is is more or less universally recognized as being crucial to effective policy and strategy in cyberspace. Thanks, Nate. What do you think, Thompson? I would say states and negotiators should resist the urge to look at some of these things with siloed lenses. A security solution, a traditional security solution alone or a diplomatic or an engineering solution alone cannot themselves address cybercrime. I think we need that sort of whole of society lens to address cybercrime. Every stakeholder will need to be involved, considering especially that most of the infrastructure is owned by the private sector. Most of the users, people in the civil society and citizens and governments need to govern. So every part of the society needs to be involved. So a whole of society lens is is a better way. I think this is how states will be able to correctly define the various roles and responsibilities of all stakeholders and to be able to identify implementable policies and solutions to cybercrime. Those are great points. And they do lead to my next question, which is actually about safeguards. So one focus of your report is the increased threat of spying both between governments and by governments on citizens. While a treaty would not deal with state-to-state espionage, Do you have recommendations for how states can safeguard against opening up the door to greater surveillance of citizens through a potential treaty? Yes, so absolutely. One of the recommendations we make in our report is for governments to adopt more specific definitions of cyber offenses than they, they have to date. You see in many, many countries across the world, you know, the criminalization of things like terrorist speech or hate speech without elaborating exactly what may mean by that. And in most cases, it's just a transparent way for government leaders to basically be able to police and, and criminalize the speech and the groups they, they don't like. And I don't think that is compatible with democracy. I don't think that's compatible with civil liberties. I don't think that's compatible with, with human rights. Um, and so I think, so for example, one one area where I think there's plenty of room for definitional innovation, for example, is rather than saying you want to uh, make disinformation illegal, how about something like coordinated inauthentic behavior, which is a term that mainly social media companies use to refer specifically to foreign actors, actors external to the country, using posing inauthentically, either by posing as a group they're not or, or spreading a kind of false piece of information for a political purpose, right? That's a much more specific definition than just saying 
disinformation is illegal and leading it up to whatever authority to define uh, hate speech or, 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 or that sort of thing. Uh, another thing I think needs to be rethought is what types of offenses apply to which types of crimes. It's, it's not clear to me that the penalty for any kind of speech that, that somebody does online should ever be jail or, or prison. I think, you know, if somebody is abusing a social media platform, maybe harassing people or, or inciting violence, maybe the simpler solution is to just deplatform them, at least as a, as, a first, as a first step. I'm not sure that's something that needs to be criminalized, again, because of the danger that more authoritarian-leaning states are simply going to use it as a tool to repress civil and political liberties. But I think, and there's there's good research to show that, that the best check that we have, I think, against cyber-related tools, espionage tools, or otherwise being used against their citizens, is already to have a reasonably strong, robust system of checks and balances in, in place. Um, you need a strong judiciary in particular, like I indicated in some of my earlier comments, you know, to be able to call balls and strikes, to tell the government that it is abusing the cyber authority that it wrote, for example. So I think when we talk of cyber capacity building, I think we need to think about doing legal and judicial capacity building that extends just beyond cybersecurity and into kind of the more traditional security and, and legal sector. We want to be absolutely sure that, that a lot of the legislation that, that's going to be passed, some of the norms that are being negotiated, aren't going to be abused. I mean, I, I think if you look at some of the countries that I think are, are doing reasonably well democratically, like the Ghanias, the Kenyans of the world, it's, it's because they have a pretty strong and robust and independent judiciary. Um, so I, I think, again, to go back to my earlier remarks, I think the best thing we can do to um, ensure that cybersecurity tools are, are not abused, I think, is to advocate more generally for the importance of civil and political liberties that are baked into constitutions, that are baked into judiciaries, that are baked into legislatures uh, all around the world. Thanks. Thompson. Data collection. Data collection, sharing, and access to this data to address cybercrime are areas where states want to be very careful, I think, not to inadvertently increase surveillance on their citizens. Because while these are very important to address cybercrime, there needs to be checks and balances. And even themselves, as we saw with the recent spyware revelations, states also need to be careful how, for what purpose they purchase certain software for. And current privacy principles, safeguards and protections that apply offline, in my opinion, should apply online as well. There's no need to separate those rights, principles or safeguards between offline and online, because I think the medium, it's only the medium that's different. The, 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 the same, those principles, those privacy principles and safeguards still apply. It's great to hear your perspective on that. This, this is currently one of the sort of overarching unsolved issues that hangs over the negotiations at the moment, even though they are 
redlining text, this is a very big question about how this will be treated and if it will be manageable in the end, whether states sign on to this treaty. So I wanted to thank you so much for joining today. We look forward to hearing more from you in the future and thank you so much. Mm -hmm.